Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Hello and welcome to the show. Tonight, in honor of the new movie release, The Wolfman, I'm going to be talking about a topic that seems to be all the buzz at this present moment in this community, shape-shifting. Is it possible for a human to change into an animal or vice versa? Those are some of the questions I'm going to be talking about in the next uh, few minutes, so... I'd like to invite you all to sit back, turn down the lights, and get ready to hear some information that you may never have heard about shape-shifting. I'm going to start the show out with uh, a little mood music. This tune is called Blood by Gaia Consort. Thank you. 
once you see her, she isn't washing your clothes. Not that seeing her face really matters. No, there's nothing at all we can do. Life begins and it all surely ends. Reading your emails, I found that many of you were asking questions and expressing interest in a variety of subjects with the topic of shapeshifting leading the field. So, <laughs> shapeshifting it will be. Let's um, take the first step by asking what exactly is shapeshifting? In its simplest terms, Shapeshifting is defined as the action of transforming one's physical appearance into another form of either animal or human. Sound impossible? Perhaps the product of an overactive fantasy writer's imagination? There was a time when this is exactly what I thought. As a kid, I fell in love with the concepts of shapeshifting, werewolves and vampires. But as I grew older, I realized that regardless of how much I wanted to believe in the existence of these exciting and very often sensual creatures, that it was nothing more than a romantic fantasy that I would never witness or experience. For about three years, I was locked into this realization until one fateful day, I was given a new shimmer of hope as my logic was confounded with an experience that to this day I can only attribute to the phenomenon of shapeshifting. I was 17 and living in a small high desert community of Southern California known as Yucca Valley, which uh, sat about 32 miles northeast of Palm Springs. I was in 11th grade in high school and had already developed an unquenchable interest in the occult. And I had a bit of a reputation around campus for it, as I was often sent to the principal's office for testing the ESP abilities of other students while in class. I had my pack of Zener cards, which were used to test clairvoyance and telepathy, my probability charts, and my set of mimeograph scorecards. <laughs> I hope I'm not the only one old enough to remember mimeograph machines. Well, I was well on my way to becoming a future parapsychologist. So I wasn't too surprised when I was approached by three girls telling me a story about a ranch hand that watched them at an artesian swimming hole in the hills where they lived. He was really spooking them out when they went skinny dipping in the swimming hole. It seems that he would watch them from behind a Joshua tree about 50 yards away and when they would catch him, he would step behind the tree and virtually disappear as they moved from side to side and saw that he was gone. After the second time this happened, they decided not to go there alone again. They then asked me if I would go with them and see if it happened again so that I could chase him away and maybe solve this mystery. 
Well, now I have to be honest with you. After hearing the words skinny dipping, my logical mind shut down and was filled with as many visuals that would be expected of a 17-year-old male. So I was not even paying attention to most of what they were saying, right up to the part where they asked me if I would go with them the next day. I accepted so fast that I became tongue-tied and had to repeat my answer three times before I finally got it right. I met them the next day at the swimming hole, arriving a little before them, so I took off my clothes and jumped in to wait for them. I had not even given the reason for being there uh, very much uh, consideration since the words skinny dipping were still echoing in my mind. Well, they finally showed and started undressing to jump in the water and uh, I can't even begin to explain the feelings that went through me as I saw they were all wearing bathing suits. Here I was, naked in the water, wishing I had not thrown my clothes out of reach. Once they realized what was going on, it took them about a half an hour to stop laughing and teasing me with the game of keep away with my pants. Once they had their fun, I got dressed and sat behind a large rock while they laughed and played in the water. After about an hour, we were all ready to give up and go home. When we saw a coyote running between the bushes and disappearing behind the large Joshua tree a few yards away. The next thing I saw startled me so bad I had to sit down to logically digest what I was seeing. From behind the Joshua tree peeked a man that had not been there moments before and could not have sneaked by me without me seeing him. I grabbed a large stick and ran toward the tree that the uh, only thing behind the tree was a large crow that took flight upon seeing me. I figured we were facing two possibilities. Either there was something in the water that was affecting all of us or I had just had an encounter with a real-life shapeshifter. Although I was a bit scared and shaken by this experience, I had to know if the man I saw was really the ranch hand, and if I saw what I think I saw. So I headed over to the ranch where he worked, and since I knew the people that owned it, I had no trouble getting into the barn where he was working with the horses. I was vacillating about stepping around the corner and confronting him, trying to get a grip on my nerve when he walked out the door, nearly crashing into me. It was him, all right. The same man I had seen at the water hole. I managed to uh, speak, asking him if he'd been at the water hole today, and he just stared at me with very dark, piercing eyes. He was from Mexico and about uh, 30 to 40 years old. I asked again, and he slowly smiled and said, No habla inglés. I thought to myself, Great, now what? I wish that I'd paid more attention in Spanish classes as I tried to remember the words to ask the same question in Spanish. It soon became obvious that I was not going to get anywhere with him, so I, I turned to leave and got about 30 feet away, and he called out, Buenas tardes, Marcos. I turned around, and on the ground stood a crow that flew away in one direction, and I took off running in the other. He left that area shortly after that, 
I think he may have returned to Mexico. But what he'd left me with was a prospect of a whole new set of possibilities that I had thought were only science fiction fantasies. It would be yet several more years before I would begin to understand the intricacies of this mysterious phenomenon of shape-shifting. So, can a person physically transform his physical body into an animal or another person? From the many stories we have heard, and based on my own personal experience, I would say yes. But in reality, the answer is no. The human body cannot transform on a cellular level into cells with animal gene expressions. I recently had a long conversation on about the subject with my youngest daughter, Jennifer, who is a senior at Washington State University and a genetics major. I wanted to be sure beyond any doubt that human cells could not undergo transmogrification. Jennifer provided me with the scientific proof I needed, and I am now of the firm belief that the physical body transformations are not a possibility. What then did I see? And how can this and many other cases be explained? To answer this question, we must, must examine the three different types of shape-shifting as taught by shamans. The first and most common form of shape-shifting is used by most shamans around the world and is known as dancing your spirit animal. It is performed by using trance-inducing drum beats at a rhythm of usually about four beats per second. The shaman then begins to chant and dance that usually emulates the movements of the animal they are trying to merge and shift into. The shape-shifting occurs sometimes into this ritual, a few minutes to maybe as long as an hour, but happens on a higher plane than the physical. It can be on the etheric, but usually it is on the astral body that the changes into the animal uh, occur and comes into direct communication with the group soul of the animal species. The desired result is a vision, sharing of knowledge or keen insight, and a shift of perception that will aid the shaman in whatever his quest may be. Sometimes people shift like this while dreaming and have very strange and sometimes vivid dreams of flying or running at high speeds. One word of caution should be noted regarding this type of shape-shifting, and that is you should not remain in this state for a very long period of time. The reason for this is that the longer an animal's soul is attached to yours, the harder it is to release it, and you could have problems when it comes time to shift back. Many animals find our souls soothing and are reluctant to disconnect. It's kind of like feeding a bear in a campground and then saying, Scat bear, go home now. Animals do not have the same emotions or thoughts as humans. And when you're shifted on an etheric or astral level, the physical body looks much like it normally would, but you act in an entirely different manner. You can be more alert, aggressive, or passionate. This is where the term animal lust comes from. 
When shifted into an aggressive animal like a wolf, many inhibitions disappear, and the passion-driven forces of survival can manifest within the human physical form. If this were not a PG-rated show, I would give you more details on the subject, but I can't, so you will have to let your own imaginations play out this scenario. One other fact that I find interesting is that the best time to try to shapeshift in any form is during the three days of the full moon. The moon exerts its influence on the physical and the astral body as well. The astral body seems to be more energetic and ready to snap into action during this time. This is the reason why people are restless and act odd during a full moon. This influencing force is where the term lunatic comes from. The second type of shape-shifting occurs exclusively within the astral body and can only be witnessed by others on the astral plane or by some psychics using astral sight. In this type of shape-shifting, you astral project into your astral body and then transform your astral body into whatever creature you desire. In this state, if you were to shift into a hawk, as far as you could perceive, you would be a hawk, and you would experience everything that a hawk does or feels, including the odd sensation of looking out in two directions from your eyes at the same time. That's a, a very strange and difficult feeling to master. One other aspect of this type of shape-shifting is found in the astral possession of a physical bodied animal. In this type of projection, you truly become an animal on the physical level while your body lies in trance somewhere else. When doing this, one must always respect the animal host and do not abuse or endanger his physical body. The third and most difficult form of shapeshifting is done with the use of what my teacher called a double. It took me some time to comprehend exactly what a double was because I kept confusing it with the astral body. A double is a projected etheric body of energy and is very close in vibration to the physical body. It is our energy body and conducts our energy both electrical and etheric to all points within and around the physical body. When we uh, project our astral bodies, we also project our etheric bodies. But the etheric body usually stays very close to the physical and seldom has consciousness for more than a few seconds. A skilled shaman learns to increase his or her personal power to a point where the etheric double can move great distances away from the physical body and the ability to hold the seat of consciousness within the etheric body. The skilled shaman also knows how to manipulate the vibrational frequencies of their double so that it materializes into the visible spectrum of the physical plane. In fact, the only apparent difference between a real physical body and a projected etheric body is in its size. The etheric body is about an inch larger in all directions than the physical body, so a person that has projected into the etheric double would appear to be a little bigger than normal.
the projected double would in all intent seem to be that person in their physical body. The shaman could then alter his appearance and shift into an animal, for example, a coyote, and then shift right back into a human again. This is a strong possibility that would explain what I saw when I was younger. The shaman can also use this principle to do a partial shift of his etheric body, well, it is inside his physical body, thereby changing the way they appear to others for a short time because it takes an enormous amount of energy and control. This is what is also known as the art of glamour, where you change your physical appearance in subtle or dramatic ways. My teacher used to play a game with me whenever he would come to town for my next series of lessons. He would tell me what day he would arrive, but would not tell me where he would be waiting for me. It was up to me to find him using the perception skills that I was developing. It usually took me about 15 minutes to half an hour. I would find him in a supermarket, walking downtown, in a movie theater. Now that was a tough one. And even once in a strip club. And that was an embarrassing one. But the strangest and most difficult game of all was one evening in August when I could sense him almost immediately and I headed for the large resort area on the lake where I live. I thought to myself, I'm gonna nail this game in record time. I parked my car and started walking out on the floating boardwalk that stretched about a quarter of a mile over the lake. About halfway out, I started getting the sensation that I was within a few feet of him, but that was impossible. The only person within a hundred yards of me was an old, and I mean really old, uh, man dressed like a bum with a really bad body odor. I was stumped, and I leaned against a large light pole, peering at my reflection in the water, getting ready to be chastised by my teacher for failing this task. Then I noticed that the smelly old man had walked over to the other side of the post and I stared into his reflected eyes and suddenly this ancient mariner grew about thirty years younger and grinning from ear to ear winked and said, Gotcha! Yeah, you guessed it. It was my mentor. I had to buy him dinner as that was the stakes of the game. Over dinner, he explained the intricacies of what he had done and gave me several exercises to practice that would eventually give me the same ability. I'm getting better at it, but I'm far from mastering it. One other interesting thing my teacher told me is that one of the favorite forms a shaman ships into is a crow. The reason being is that a crow does not have many natural enemies. And most people do not pay attention to crows since they are so common. So if you ever see a crow that's acting peculiar or making an unusual amount of noise, you might want to pay attention to it. Make no mistake, my friends. Our world is full of very magical beings. And things are not always as they seem to be. So, until my next show, thank you again for listening. And be sure to experiment with the transforming silver light of the next full moon.
you in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein You better not let him in Little old lady got mutilated late last night Werewolves of London again Gent who ran amok in Kent Lately he's been overheard in Mayfair You better stay away from him He'll rip your lungs out, Jim I'd like to meet his tailor that was Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. There will be no news from the lab this week, basically because there is no news and I am not experimenting with shape-shifting. <laughs> at least not at this time. So, I will play this show out with part two of an interview with my spiritual brother, Sanakwa, who is an Abenaki elder and storyteller. Tonight, Sanakwa is going to share with us the Abenaki stories of the relationships between his people and animals. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. I now present Sanakwa. So to start the right way, so that I feel comfortable, and so that you learn 
a little bit of my language. I want to teach you the first word that you should learn of any language. And it's a way of saying hello. The way we do it, we raise our right hand and hold it open. This shows that our hand is open. We're not hiding anything from each other. And then we speak saying these words, Yatahe. Yatahe means my heart is open too, just like my hand. In other words, you can come in and be my friend. And wherever you go, whatever language you hear spoken, I hope that a word like that will be the first that you learn, the first that you hear. And so now I feel better. I'm Sanakwa. I'm Abenaki Indian, originally from central Quebec in Canada. One of the creatures that I always revered, and one that uh, was uh, very mystical to me, was a snake. Because where I come from, you don't see any snakes. My father used to tell me about them, though. And he told me many wonderful things about the snake. Now, a lot of people don't think of the snake as a lovable thing. But I do. And as I said, I never saw one, but my father would tell me about them. He'd tell me that the snake can't blink his eyes. His eyes are frozen open. And I'd ask my father, well, then how can the snake go to sleep if he can't close his eyes? And my father says, well, he was taught to wait until the darkest hours of the night, and then he can sleep. And my father told me that the snake is cold-blooded, that his blood is cold to the touch. And I said, well, then how doesn't he freeze to death? And my father would say, well, the Creator has taught him to lay out in the rocks in the sun. That keeps him warm. And so he lives. And my father said that the snake doesn't have any legs. Well, I asked, well, then how does he move about? And my father would tell me that he was taught to crawl along the ground, and he moves about. The Creator takes care of all of his. The most wonderful thing that I found out about the snake, though, is that he has a fine beaded skin, just like my belt. I don't know how many people have ever looked closely at a snake and seen the fine beaded pattern in their skin. And the, the snake's skin is very well beaded. And I'd ask my father, well, you said that the snake don't have any arms or legs. And he said, this is true. And I said, well, if he doesn't have any hands, how could he weave the belt, the beads, to make his skin? My father said, you listen, and I'll tell you, and the story is true. Because it was long ago, when it was long ago, when this our world was new, when the great father finished making the mountains and the valleys, and he put the waters all where they should be, then he decided to fill this world with creatures of every kind, great and beautiful were the creatures that he made. Now, each one, he made the body from clay. And with his own breath, he filled them with life. Each one, he touched on the head and upon the heart so that they could learn and they could feel love. And so it was the great father decided to make a great and beautiful lizard that he would call Shishigwa, snake. So the great father took clay and he rolled it out into a great long strip like we would use to make a coiled pot. Have you ever made a pot like that with a coil of clay? Well, this was the body of Shishigwa. But when the great father reached in his pot for more clay to make Shishigwa's legs, the pot was empty. There was no clay. And so the great father says to Shishigwa, Snake, 
you must wait here, and I must go to the river and gather more clay to make your legs. And when I get the clay, I will make your legs and finish you. So you wait until I return. And so it was, the great father went to the river to gather clay. And Shishigwa waited. And he waited for a long time. And finally, Snake says to himself, I don't wish to wait here any longer. I wish to go out and see the great beauty of this creation world for myself. And when I see that great beauty, then I will return here and my father will finish me. And so it was, with no legs, Shishigwa crawls off into the grass and he is gone. Now you know that snakes still don't have any legs today. This story is true, huh? And so it was. The great father returns and he sees that snake is gone and he worries in his heart saying to himself, poor Shishigwa, he's gone and I didn't get to finish him. He doesn't have his legs. But worse than that, he doesn't have any skin. How will he live? And so it is. Shishigwa is off in the grass with no legs and no skin. Well, he sees the great beauty of this creation world and he loves it dearly in his heart. But time passes and the sun goes down and darkness comes that first evening of creation time so long ago. Now, you know, at night it gets cold, doesn't it? And Shishigwa doesn't have any skin to keep him warm, and pretty soon he starts to freeze. And he shivers and he shakes. And so cold does he get that still today the snakes are cold-blooded. You know this is true. And he shivers and he shakes and he says to himself, Oh, it gets a cold at night in this creation world. I have no skin to keep me warm. I must do something. My body hurts so that I will die. Shishigwa looks out and around. And off in the distance, he sees the glow of a nice warm fire. Now, Shishigo was touched with wisdom, and he knows that if he gets up next to the fire, the fire will keep him warm. And so he goes off to be near to the fire. When he gets near to the fire, he sees that the fire is inside a circle of wigwams. Inside of each wigwam, there's a nice warm fire. And so Shishigwa goes inside the first wigwam. He goes to get up next to the fire, but there's a woman inside. What do you think woman does when she sees a snake coming toward her? <laughs> she screams, because she's frightened. And she frightens poor Shishigwa, so he crawls back out into the cold where he knows that he will die. And there with great tears in his eyes, he says to himself, I don't understand. I just wish to get him next to the fire to be warm. But woman, thinks I'm ugly, and she screams at me. Poor snake, he doesn't understand. And so cold is it now that the tears, they freeze in his eyes so that he can't blink them. And slowly he crawls away, and slower and slower he crawls as his body begins to freeze. And soon his tail freezes into ice, and it cracks and it breaks into pieces and it rattles as he crawls along the ground. And Shishigwa knows that he will die. He looks inside another wigwam, and there he sees a nice warm fire. But 
there's a man inside. And so Shishima is very quiet and very careful he crawls. He gets up next to the fire and right up next to the man and there he curls himself and he starts to get warm. But the man looks down and he sees a snake right next to him. The man jumps up and he takes a stick and he hits Shishigwa and he hurts him very badly. The snake crawls outside and he knows now he will die. And he looks for a place along the ground to lay himself to die. Poor snake, he doesn't understand. But as he's crawling along the ground, he sees something laying there, a fine beaded belt like mine. Now someone went in that night and they didn't pick up after themselves and they left this fine beaded belt laying on the ground. And Shishigwa loves great beauty. So he stops to see this thing and he looks at it and he admires the colors and he says to himself, oh, this is a beautiful thing. I'm glad that I saw this before I died. It makes my heart so glad. I love this great beauty. And then he says, Oh, I wish I had a skin like this. For if I had a skin like this, these fine colors would keep me warm and I would not die. And then I would be beautiful. And woman wouldn't scream at me. And a man wouldn't hit me with a stick. If only I had a skin like this. And so it was that Shishigwa thought about making a fine skin from this beautiful beaded belt. And when I was young, I worked in the hunting camp, and I helped to skin the animals that my people trapped. And when you take off the skin, underneath the body is sticky. Did you know that? Well, this is true. I guess that sticky is what holds on our skin. And Shishigwa doesn't have any skin, so his body is sticky, huh? And he knows this. And so this is what he does. Right where those beads are laying on the ground, Shishigwa crawls up on them. What do you think begins to happen? the beads begin to stick. And he rolls over on the beads and over. And more beads stick and more and more. And soon Shishigwa is covered all with bright, shiny beads from his nose to his tail. And so it is. This is how Shishigwa, the grandfather of snakes, got his fine beaded skin that first evening of creation time so long ago. And so it is. Snakes everywhere in the world today, the great-grandchildren of Shishigwa, all have fine beaded skins. And I know this story is true because my father told me and it's finished. So that's how the snake got his skin. It's a nice story and it means something different to every different age. But one of the morals of that story is simply this. And I think it applies to us here, especially when we go out into the, the world at large. Why do you think that the woman scream at snake? And why do you think the man hit him with a stick? He was the first snake ever made. No one ever saw a snake before. Why would they do that? Well, he looked strange. He didn't have any skin. He didn't have any arms or legs. He was different, wasn't he? And all too often in this world, we find when people see something or someone that's different, they think right away that different is bad. It frightens them, and they strike out. And one of the things that we need, especially us, to teach this world 
or to exhibit to it that different isn't bad. It's just different, and that's all. Our stories are fun. There are a lot of fun stories. It's an entertainment because um, we didn't have television. Some parts up there, they still don't have uh, regular electricity. Some people uh, still live uh, with wood stoves and kerosene lamps. And it's not a bad life. They're sure not uh, subject to the energy crisis. If they need, if the weather is cold, they cut more wood. And it's a pretty simple life. Our entertainment uh, in our stories was one of the things that we had. When we went out to the hunting camp, we didn't have electricity there. And uh, we'd sit around this, a fire at night. It was the only real entertainment we had. It was a good time, and it's something that I miss a great deal. I think one of the things that's missing from this world is that kind of personal contact in a family and a living story. A lot of people ask me to write my stories down, but I, I, I haven't done that because to me it kind of kills them. They're living things as long as there's someone to tell them. So I've been teaching people the stories. And every time a story is told, even though it's word for word the same, like the story of Shishigwa the snake, every time it's told, it's different. It means something else. There are a lot of good stories about the nighttime sky. And one of my favorites about coyote and how the stars got to be scattered across the sky. Now, I don't know, we can't see too many stars here tonight. But on a clear night, you know that you look up at the sky and you see stars scattered there every which way. Well, that wasn't meant to be in the beginning. And you know that coyotes always cry in the night. Well, there's a nighttime story that tells you those, the reasons for those two things. They're interrelated. Coyotes howling and stars scattered across the sky have something to do with each other. It was back in the beginning when this our world was new, when there was beauty in every place and no shadow but a rainbow of color in every place, when all men and animals could speak the same language. This world was bright and new that first day of creation time. Our Father had filled this world with all kinds of beauty, and it caused all of the creatures of the world to love one another and to communicate. And there was safety and peace in every place, great beauty everywhere, a rainbow of color in every place. When evening came, the first night of creation time so long ago, the sky darkened, and when all the men and animals looked up at the nighttime sky, they saw that it was black and empty. There was nothing there. And they started to speak to one another, saying these things. Huh. This creation world is filled all with great beauty. There's a rainbow of color in every place. Great beauty there is, but the nighttime sky, our great father hasn't finished it. He's left it black and empty as death. And so it was. That's the way that they spoke when they saw that nighttime sky that first evening of creation time so long ago. And our great father heard the people and animals speaking that way. Then he looked. And he said to himself, hmm, it's true. I have made a beautiful creation world. I filled it with great beauty in every place, a rainbow of color and no shadow anywhere. But the nighttime sky I've left black and empty, and there's nothing there to see. So I must do something to finish the nighttime sky. And so 
On the morning of the second day of creation, time so long ago, the great father set about a great task of work. He took a great bag, and he went out on the muskeg, and there he picked the little tiny flowers that we call morning stars. And he filled this great bag with these, these stars, these flowers. And then he cut a long stick so that he could put the, the flowers on the end of the stick and place them in the sky just so, in a fine pattern, just like my beads. And then he looked for the highest hill in the land so that from that high place he could place these little flowers up in the sky just so, and out of all of harm's reach. Now he climbed this high mountain with his great bag full of stars and his long stick. By the time he reached the top of the mountain, it was still light. And so the great father says to himself that he will wait until the darkness comes. He will take a nap because he's tired from his work. And when darkness comes, he'll be able to place these stars in the sky just right. And so he takes off the great bag and he lays it on the ground and he goes to sleep in the shade of a great tree growing there on the hill. Now while he's sleeping, someone comes along. It's Coyote. And Coyote is like all dogs. He's always thinking of food, always thinking of good things to eat. When Coyote comes on to the Creator, he sees the Creator sleeping and right nearby a great bag filled with something. So the Coyote says to himself, Hmm, I bet there's some food in that bag. I bet there's good things to eat inside that bag. And I'm going to take that bag and look inside and see. And if there's something good to eat, I'm just going to eat some of it, and then I'll put it back, and the Creator will never know. So Coyote goes over, and he grabs that bag in his teeth, and he goes to run off to a safe place to look in the bag, but as he runs, he trips and he falls, and the bag rips open, and the stars splash all across the sky every which way. And just then, as darkness begins to descend on the creation world, that second evening of creation so long ago, our great father wakens from his nap, and the first thing that he sees on opening his eyes is his stars splash all across the sky. And he looks down, and he sees Kaote standing there looking foolish with that bag in his teeth, ripped open. And the great father knows Kaote's heart. And the great father says to Kaote, Kaote, look what you've done. I wish to put those stars in the sky in a fine pattern, just like beads. And look at the mess you've made. Poor Coyote. He looked up, and a tear filled his eyes, a shame filled his heart to see what he had done to the nighttime sky. And Coyote began to cry. And so it is. This is why stars are scattered all across the sky every which way. And this is why the coyotes, the great-grandchildren of that first coyote so long ago, when the sky darkens and they look up and see the mess that their great-grandfather has made, <laughs> shame fills their heart, tears fill their eyes, and they begin to cry. And so that's a story about uh, how our heavens got to be. I don't think they <laughs> I really don't think Howard did such a bad job, though.
there's plenty of stories about the nighttime sky and and how the sky got to be the way it is at night. Um, any people that have lived in the natural world have been very attuned to the sky and the different constellations, the different shapes that they see in the sky hold meaning. And hunters and farmers and fishermen have to be aware of the changes in the sky through the year to be able to predict the seasons, the planting and the hunting times, the beginning and ending of a year, and the cycles that we live by in this creation world. One of the, the finest uh, constellation is the, the, the Big Dipper. And if you look at it, it's four stars that form the, the bowl of the Dipper, and then three smaller stars that make the handle. And if you look next to the middle star in the handle, you see that there's a very dim star right next to it, a little tiny star right next to that star. Well, among my people, that's not a Big Dipper, it's a bear. Those four stars are the bear, and then the three stars chasing it are our hunters. And the one in the middle the, with the dim star, that's his little dog, Bright Teeth. And I'll tell you how they got to be up in, that, up in the sky. And if anybody ever noticed, the Big Dipper rotates around the sky all through the year. It never stops moving. It never stops. It's in constant motion. There's a reason for that, too, why that bear runs through the sky and those hunters, they follow them. You see, my people, we have a song that goes back to the beginning of our people, and it says, We are Abenaki. We follow the bear. There never was a time that we didn't follow the bear. The bear is our brother, and he teaches us how to live. And so most of the men of my people are in the bear clan. All of our warriors, our hunters, and our chiefs came from the bear clan. And we revere the bear, and the symbol is the mark of the bear's paw. We follow that mark through the days of our life. We follow his tracks. But we don't hunt the bear. The bear is our brother, and there is peace between my people and the bear. We hunted every other creature of the forest, but not the bear. These we suffered always to live in peace. And one night at our hunting camp, three Cree hunters came to our camp from the other side of the Mistassini Forest from around James Bay. And they had a little dog with them. And they came to join us for food. And we gave them deer meat. This was before my time. This was when my father was young. And they gave them food and they gave them deer meat. And then they gave them a place to sleep for the night, these Cree hunters. But these Cree, you know, they liked to eat bear. And the deer meat didn't satisfy them. So during the night, they woke up, the oldest hunter did, and he woke the others up, and he whispered to them to go and find a bear, because there was one nearby in a den in the hillside near the hunting camp. And so these Cree hunters, they snuck away. Well, our old medicine man, Bedagi, that's rolling thunder, he saw these Cree hunters sneaking away from the camp. And he had an idea of what they were doing, because he knew that one of our brothers, the bear, lived nearby. And these Cree hunters liked the meat of the bear and no other. And that the deer meat didn't satisfy them. So Badagi got up and he followed them to see what they were doing. And as he watched, 
the oldest Cree hunter, he made a torch of sticks, and he lit this, and he went into the cave where the bear was sleeping, and with that torch, he chased the bear out of the cave, and he shouted to the other hunters waiting there. And the bear ran past these hunters, running towards the south, and they chased after him, these three hunters, and their little dog, Bright Teeth, biting at the heels of the bear. And the bear turned, and he ran north, and the hunters followed him, running north, and their little dog, Bright Teeth, snapping at his heels. And the doggy saw this, and he didn't like it, and he decided he'd make some medicine to help the bear. Great medicine did he make in those days long ago. And he made a powerful medicine so that the bear would lift up off the ground and he ran into the sky. Well, by now, one of the young Cree hunters had wounded the bear with an arrow. And so it was that the bear's blood dripped down on the sumac and the maple, and so they turned red in the fall. And the bear lifted off into the sky, and so did the hunters. And they didn't realize. And suddenly they looked about, and they looked down, and there was the earth far below them. And the old Cree hunter said, enough of this. This is powerful medicine. We must go back. But the medicine was strong. And the Cree hunters couldn't come back down out of the sky. And their punishment is that for all of time, until the end of creation time, those three hunters and their little dog will spend the rest of their time running through the sky, chasing that bear, and they'll never catch him. Our brother is safe forever. 